0: Granger, for the ones who get it done.
1: Maysville Road is now a rural stretch of highway that runs through Mason County in the bluegrass country of northeastern Kentucky. And its namesake is a small town in that state along the Ohio River. As of the 2004 census, Maysville's population was 7,323. The stillness of the road and the town whose name it bears would seem to cover the fact that at one time, 177 years ago, Maysville Road played a major part in a battle between Congress and the President, and had a major role in strengthening that great presidential power, the Veto. The Maysville Road Bill of 1830 provided for the federal government to buy $150,000, a lot of money at that time, in stock in a private company who would build a 60-mile road connecting the towns of Maysville and Lexington, Kentucky. This was an extension of the Cumberland and National Roads that existed at that time. Before the train, and of course well before the automobile, roads and canals were important for the nation's commerce. The U.S. Congress passed the bill, the 103 to 87 vote in the House of Representatives. But the bill soon met a veto from President Andrew Jackson. As he said, I am not able to view this bill in any other light as a measure of purely local character. It has no connection with any established system of improvements and is exclusively within the limits of a state. That state, of course, was Kentucky, and its favorite son was Jackson's nemesis, Henry Clay. Jackson's veto argument was really not constitutional. She would make it clear he didn't mind a federal government spending money on improvements. And it couldn't truly be said that a road that connected one border of Kentucky to another and connected with other roads that were federal roads could truly be said to be of local interest only. Indeed, Andrew Jackson and his Secretary of State and political confidant, Martin Van Buren, wanted to stop the budding political power of Clay by blocking his plan for an expansive national improvements. But in using the veto for this purpose and stopping the federal funding of this bluegrass state road, Andrew Jackson did something spectacular, something highly unusual, something that would anger his opponents. Of course, the veto itself should not have been shocking. Though President Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both declined to use this presidential power, James Madison had vetoed five bills, and George Washington vetoed two bills during his presidency, one because he felt it was unconstitutional, and the other because, in his opinion, it was hastily and sloppily written. In the understanding of 41 years of this young American government, the veto power was very limited. The common understanding was that the president vetoed bills only when they were unconstitutional, sloppy, or affected the office of the president in a dramatic way. In this case, Jackson couldn't argue that a bill making the Maysville Road was unconstitutional. After all, he supported public improvements in the past and after. He couldn't argue that it was sloppily written or that it affected his role as president. Jackson had vetoed the bill simply because he didn't like it. He didn't agree with it. And that was seen at the time as a violation Of the spirit of the veto an event like jackson's maysville road veto would barely make news today Uh, jackson a president of the 19th century blocking spending he didn't like was acting according to our modern sensibilities and our understanding of what a president does when he vetoes a bill and it is probably true that he was acting according to the majority of the founding fathers consensus But it did provoke a reaction at the time, and this veto and Jackson's other actions would lead to the formation of the Whig, which is a way of saying anti-King Party in America. And after Whigs elected William Henry Harrison president, he said the veto was only to be used to protect the office of the presidency. Another Whig president, Zachary Taylor, said that personal opinion of the president should not control the Congress when considering vetoes taylor's statement followed by his vice president fillmore after his death is occasionally brought up by critics of the veto but seems but his view seems outdated today jackson's most controversial veto was when against congressional opposition he vetoed and killed the second bank of the united states which ended the idea of a central u.s bank until woodrow wilson created the federal reserve system in 1913 In this case, his veto would actually provoke a recession in the United States by choking the money supply. In 1996, President Bill Clinton would do something that, despite a little less publicity than Jackson's action, provoked merely as much reaction and outrage in the Congress as did Andrew Jackson's original veto. Utilizing authority under Congress, Bill Clinton issued four vetoes, most notably that one that provided federal funding to the city of New York. But Clinton, unlike every veto of his predecessor, did not simply veto the entire bill. He selected portions of the bill. This was under a power given to him by the Line Item Veto Act of 1996. And not unlike Andrew Jackson, in the first use of the veto for non-constitutional purposes... Bill Clinton had politics on his mind. Patrick Moynihan, then-senator from New York, who had blocked some of Clinton's early economic plans, served a constituency that benefited from the funding. After Clinton's line-item veto, Moynihan responded, We will see you in court. And in the case of Clinton v. the city of New York, the Supreme Court stripped the president of the line-item veto power, calling it unconstitutional. In doing so, the Supreme Court ended a historical legal mystery that presidents had considered acting on for quite a long time, the line-item veto available to many governors, and they were probably right to do so, as giving the president a line-item veto would in effect give him all legislative power. As legislative bills are almost always compromises, not only between members of one house, but then between the two houses, if a president were able to veto selected portions of it when it gets to him, the president could then select new winners and losers in the compromise process. In effect, the president would hold all the cards. Although President George W. Bush has rarely used a veto, he's threatening a veto to any bill that will withdraw funding for the Iraq war, putting some spotlight on the constitutional procedure that he's rarely needed to use, but may soon feel the need to resort to often. During the debate that created the Constitution, the Founding Fathers, though I truly dislike the use of that term because there really were so many of them and they had very different opinions. Let's say the majority of people who gathered in Philadelphia in 1787 in secret to debate the Constitution. And now after saying all that, you know why people use the term founding fathers in common historical parlance. The majority of the founders clearly wanted the president to have what they then called a negative. These people, most prominent among them, Alexander Hamilton, were afraid that while they had created an office of the president, within a few years, the Congress could easily disable all of the president's powers. And in fact, it could be done with one resolution of Congress. That is the reason for the creation of a veto, or a negative as they had called it then. Now there was some additional discussions during the Constitutional Convention that the veto could also be used to protect minority groups from elites, and overall to have the effect of avoiding regional strife that would dominate a congressional body that's elected from all different parts of the country by placing a negative in the hands of the one individual who is elected by the whole nation. But no one wanted to go as far as Alexander Hamilton did. Alexander Hamilton wanted an absolute negative, a veto that could not be overridden. But unanimously, the states voted to have a negative that could be overridden by two thirds of the House and the Senate. And so when a bill is presented to the president, He has three options. He can sign it, he can veto it, or he can do nothing, and then in most cases it becomes law, except where Congress is not in session. And we'll talk about that in a bit. President John Tyler would follow Jackson's precedent and veto six bills, so many that he ended up being brought up on impeachment charges for preventing the legislative process to move forward. These charges went nowhere, of course. But presidents did get a little bit conservative about their use of the veto. James Polk would veto only three bills, Taylor and Fillmore none. Lincoln would veto the same number of bills as Tyler with no impeachment charges ever brought. And he would utilize a slightly different tactic in most of his vetoes. When Lincoln vetoed the Wade Davis Bill of 1864, this was a program proposed for the Reconstruction of the South by two Radical Republicans, Senator Benjamin Wade of Ohio and Henry Winter Davis of Maryland. These two so-called Radical Republicans did not like President Lincoln's plan, which was that if a state was in the Confederacy and wanted to come back to the Union, only 10% of the people in that state had to take an oath that they would swear allegiance to the, the Union. It was a very low standard, setting the bar very low, for states to come back to the Union and to restore the nation. These senators wanted an ironclad oath, basically to the effect that they never in the past had supported the Confederacy. The Wade-Davis bill really made it impossible that southern states would ever rejoin the Union. The tactic that Lincoln would use on the Wade-Davis bill as he would use on the majority of his vetoes, was a so-called pocket veto. A pocket veto when the president, in effect, vetoes a bill by simply not signing it while Congress is in, not in session. So as we said earlier, if the president doesn't sign a bill, it becomes law as long as Congress is in session. When Congress is not in session, the bill, in effect, is pocket vetoed. It just simply does not take place. majority of Lincoln's vetoes were pocket vetoes. It's a little bit less publicity when uh, when a president does it this way the majority of, of opinion in the union at this time during which was still during the civil war was a little bit more harsher treatment of the south by contrast to lincoln's seven vetoes during his presidency grover cleveland was a veritable veto machine facing a congress his own party's Congress that had decided on a vigorous schedule of legislation he matched their new bills with an astonishing rate of vetoes is really unmatched by any other president before or since. Cleveland vetoed as many as 414 bills in his first term and to put that in perspective the number of bills that Cleveland vetoed in his first term is more than double all the vetoes cast by all presidents before him. In doing so Cleveland slowly began to bring the presidency to its modern, powerful place in the legislative process and take some of the reins back from Congress. You know, you'll hear or you'll read in books about the so-called imperial presidency and how one president, in some cases people will say Franklin Roosevelt, in other cases they'll say Theodore Roosevelt. Some might even say William McKinley. Woodrow Wilson certainly is a candidate there, naming them as the one president who brought the presidency to its modern stage, but really it's, a, it's an incremental process. And Grover Cleveland, though he was conservative in other respects of the presidency, in terms of the veto power, was a big part of expanding the president's role in the legislative process. Cleveland was a bourbon or conservative Democrat, elected with the support of rebellious Republicans. He didn't have the same allegiance to his Democratic friends in Congress, who were elected in the same year that he was elected president. His goal was cutting down federal spending. Some of the biggest targets of his wrath were pensions. Pensions had been getting out of hand around this time. Now, this is about 20 years after the Civil War. Federal pensions were intended only for those disabled by war wounds, but an 1887 bill would have provided a federal disability and or age pension to all veterans, even their parents. Cleveland vetoed the bill and it was sustained. Observing from the sidelines as an academic, a young professor named Woodrow Wilson cheered on Cleveland's re-exertion of the powers of the presidency, which Wilson felt was needed to restore American government to its best working potential. Still, Wilson felt that the presidency was not, in the 1880s, strong enough, as he wrote in his academic text. The president, Wilson felt, was more capable of governing than the myopic members of Congress who were elected from one district or another. Though when Wilson actually did become president 25 years later, his use of the veto was a fraction of Cleveland's. Another interesting Cleveland veto is when he vetoed a bill for drought relief in Texas in 1887 and cited a quote from James Madison who had said in the 1790s that the federal government was not authorized to spend money merely on objects of benevolence. In a sense, Grover Cleveland was no new dealer. And there may have been a price for all of Cleveland's vetoes, especially of his own party's spending and patronage plans. He was nominated by Democrats for second term, but certainly less enthusiastically than before, and he would lose his 1888 reelection. The New York Tammany Hall organization, who did not receive the share of the spoils they had hoped to, was a big factor in his defeat as they sat on their hands during the election. But Cleveland didn't really change his behavior, take any lesson from that, or nor did he care to. When Cleveland was returned to office, the only president to be returned to office after sitting out a term, he still vetoed about 170 bills, which, although less than his first term, was still more than any other president in history, save two. Cleveland's habit of using the veto didn't really take on. After his robust use of the procedure, few presidents in history have used the veto even a tenth as much as Cleveland. Most presidents average about 40 per term. The next president to veto as much legislation was another New York Democrat. and he certainly wasn't looking to cut federal spending or eliminate the goal of government in providing relief for benevolence. This was Franklin Roosevelt, and in his 12 years of office, he vetoed over 600 bills, despite the fact his own party had huge Democratic majorities in Congress, who, for the most part, was giving him what he wanted. But part of the explanation for the 600 vetoes is that Franklin Roosevelt had four terms. But that puts his average at 200 per term, which is still more than the average president. What Franklin Roosevelt was doing was using vetoes to punish members of Congress, in effect to crack the whip, to assert his authority, and to make Congress subordinate, if not subservient. And this practice was certainly followed by his successor, Harry Truman, who, when faced with the Republican Congress from 1947 to 1949, disapproved over 175 of their bills. He successfully used his veto messages as a means of calling press attention to his policies while simultaneously attacking the Congress as the do-nothing 80th Congress. After Truman, though, the use of the veto would slow down again. Eisenhower just issued 108 over eight years. The alleged overuse of the veto was an issue in the 1976 presidential race when Ford had vetoed 66 bills. And in his debate with Jimmy Carter, Ford parried the attack by referring to Franklin Roosevelt's prodigious use of the veto. Bill Clinton, though, in office eight years, and most of that time under hostile Republican control, vetoed only 37 bills. Unlike Grover Cleveland, Clinton fits into the modern model that he desired to be seen as an activist president and craved accomplishments. Though, like many presidents, the threat of Clinton vetoes, especially in the wake of his successful showdown with Congress, may have created some of that compromise. George W. Bush, of course, having worked with a Republican Congress for most of his presidency now, and that Congress working in lockstep with him, held off on using the veto in his first term, and then vetoed a bill only recently when a stem cell bill reached his desk. Some critics argue that when modern presidents use the veto, in a blatantly political manner they do more than simply engage in partisanship they are seriously undermining the constitution itself critics argue that a president who vetoes much legislation that he dislikes such as what cleveland was engaging in such as what cleveland was engaging in or what Franklin Roosevelt and Truman were attempting to do forces Congress to accede to his wishes unless it's able to muster a two-thirds majority in both houses to override the vetoes. This use of the veto, this political use that probably started with Andrew Jackson in effect, could transform the simple majority rule for votes required by Article 1 of the Constitution to a two-thirds majority. Not sure I agree with critics. Although there have been abuses, and although the veto definitely slows down government, puts the balance of power more to the president and does create a situation such as now where a house that's elected really doesn't always have the ability to enact popular will until they until a president of their own party takes the chair. Overall, I believe it has not been used often just as the representatives at the Constitutional Convention intended. And its use provides a protection for legislation that is to myopic, too much of local interest. It may be that a two-thirds vote is not a sufficient check on the president's veto power on its own. That's a very hard vote to get. And like the critics say, it does mean that in theory, a president and one-third of the Congress can hold the government hostage. But that belies the reality both of the history and especially of the modern history of the veto. The modern check on the veto power, really throughout the 20th century and now, is the attention that a veto generates. Vetoes are generally big news, and therefore presidents can use it only when they're ready with a justification for it, when they can make a case that they're acting out of the national interest. Most importantly, Modern action presidents don't normally get bogged down in fighting. They have to be seen as achieving something all the time, if not for themselves, then for their party and perhaps their legacies. Unlike the 1880s, presidential polls are being watched constantly now. There's too much at stake for presidents to be 21st century Grover Clevelands. It's unlikely that a president would veto 414 bills as Cleveland did. It would seriously erode his popularity and the popularity of his party. President Bush may get away with some vetoes regarding the Iraq War, but if Democrats continue to send legislation his way, and he continues to use the veto power, it will have the effect of further eroding his presidency and possibly, over time, hurt the 2008 Republican nominee. With History Beating Up Politics, I'm Bruce Carlson.